We were devastated to learn that Greg Pellegrino died unexpectedly while this podcast was still being edited. Greg was a visionary and trailblazer in the field of management consulting. He will be sorely missed. Welcome back to Winning with Connections. This is Donna Honeycutt. Today, we're going to talk with Greg Pellegrino, who was one of our first mentors when we started our own small business. Greg is one of the executive partners at Deloitte Consulting with a specialty in consulting to the U.S. government. He is also serving as a sort of futurist for Deloitte and has been way ahead of every trend for the last 10 years that I've known him, identifying changes in the business landscape for would-be disruptors and innovators and helping businesses adjust to what's coming down the pike so that they could field it very easily. I think you'll enjoy this. Can you tell us a little bit more as an entrepreneur, and, and I'm talking about the one and two person shops really just starting out about identifying what kind of value you can really bring to the table that's different about differentiating yourself and branding yourself so that you're not just one of, of you know a panoply of the same providers of products or services it's a great question because i think that often people who are starting out on a new initiative are thinking about it have trouble Kind of making the conversion of their, you know, their idea or a market to something that they can monetize, and I think that the, you know, the the bridge between, you know, a good idea and then being able to successfully monetize that, you know, in a sustainable way, right, in a way that allows you to continue to grow and, you know, add on to your workforce, I think is a really tough challenge. But you know, I I think of the examples of what we've seen with, for example, this kind of gig economy type of movement, you know, and the idea that there are opportunities to take slack that exists within a system, you know, whether it's transportation, housing, or other, you know, types of really human connected kind of services, right, or, or resources, and fit, figure out ways to take advantage of the fact that these assets, let's, let's take a community and let's think about how in that, in a community like my rural community, everybody has heavy equipment to, in order to run their farms or manage their property. And there's a lot of specialized equipment that you only need perhaps one time a year. So when I think about, you know, you've got millions of dollars of invested investment in is capital assets that are actually seldomly used and could be used perhaps differently throughout the year in a community sharing type of a way. And I think there are, you know, whether you're in a rural community or an urban environment where we all have, you know, different skills, you can think back and, you know, I use that example of a barter type of society, a barter community where, you know, in, in farm country or in New England, in the fishing community, this idea of bartering is very common, you know, and that's, I think, the fundamentals for thinking about economic activity and entrepreneurship. You know, so for the individual starting out, thinking about what they do that's unique, maybe they repair bicycles um, and someone else who is in a different line of business, well, they trade value, values created between them. But more importantly, they then can be able to add more, you know, customers onto that platform and think about 
ways to grow. And that's that's ultimately what happens in entrepreneurial activity is somebody figures out a you know a little bit of a better way to do something, maybe a an app that fills a gap and fills a need. You know, for example, using my example of farm equipment, I could imagine an app that says that you know, my neighbor has a chainsaw, my other neighbor has a fence pole digger attachment for the tractor. And, you know, you just go on and on and on. And that you think about those types of things where, you know, where you can extract that the value out of, you know, out of an activity or prior investment. And I, I do like the example of my friend who looked around the U.S., saw that the U.S. didn't have the most advanced packing packaging equipment. That, that equipment was being made in China, brought the equipment over, and now has the most advanced, high-production, high-capacity packaging equipment to fill a need right when when COVID was beginning in order to really ramp up the production of hand sanitizer and packaging it in a way that could be used more easily by the travel and tourism industries. So you mentioned capital, which which I think is a really important component of a startup. Service startups normally require very little capital. Manufacturing and, and production startups and retail startups often do require significant capital. So let's let's do a thought experiment here. And I want to ask you, let's say COVID had not happened. Do you think that your friend with the packaging company would have been as successful? And do you think we might be sitting here talking about how he made a calculation error because he invested too much capital in something that wasn't really required? Hmm. Good question. You know, what I learned about that example was that this packaging equipment is so effective that it actually extends the useful shelf life of food products that are packaged using this technique. And I think about, you know, while while the immediate need in shifting to packaging hand sanitizer, the market for this type of technology in the food industry was already there. And, you know, and I think that it's just really, again, it's really a shift of using that technology for one application and then being able to to go back to the original business plan, which was uh, to go to bigger brand, uh, recognized brands that were in the food industry and offer this technology. Um, so, you know, it's 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 using my basic example of of um, a rural community where you know one person has a specialized piece of equipment. It allows them you know to be able to set the market rate for uh, use of that equipment and um, uh, and be able to share it and get, get value from it so it's funny because I yeah, I think capital you know is probably one of the easier problems to solve in all of this equation I actually think that the ideas are probably a little scarcer capital is widely available through lending you know and other and other resources so you know, again, having the idea, taking the risk, understanding the market viability. Funny because now that I think about it, I have a, a colleague and a neighbor who has an idea and wants to sit down and talk about it over the next couple of days to get my reaction to their business plan or going into a very, very, very narrow specialized niche, but one that very few people address. And I, and I well, I can't go into the details of it, but it's very unique and 
And the question is, is the market there for it, right? And that's where that's where I tend to focus is understanding the demographics, understanding uh, spending patterns, uh, being able to think about you know how to create a premium because I I particularly believe that premium value is where the the opportunities that interest me are the most likely to occur. I don't I don't really think too much about commodity or you know low cost high volume types of opportunities as much. So I'm sure that there are a lot of people that understand finance and understand you know efficiency that might be better at the, at at that high volume commodity type of level of doing business, but that's not where I think about it. So really, what you're looking for is that idea, that niche idea that is really new, really has a welcoming market probably existing for it. And and like you said, I'm not repeating what you said, but it, I really want to emphasize it. And then allows the producer or the service offerer to charge a premium. And that I can tell you that under those conditions, it becomes a lot easier to build a company. Well, I think about your example of you recognizing the opportunity to work with service members, uh, spouses, and give them the platform to be able to work in a flexible environment and then to be able to scale that, not only do it all over the world or somewhere other than where you're based, but to do it in Europe or to, you know, to do it in other communities. I think that's just, again, another another example of filling a very unique market need and then being able to scale it up. How do you identify if the market is there? I mean, I, I'm thinking, for example, of remember that, what was it, the Newton that Apple put out a lot? I'm dating wow. myself. Do you really? Okay, so this was a very early precursor to the iPhone, right, and the BlackBerry, and it was put out. That came out around what, like 1998? Yeah, I think right in the 95 to 98 type of time frame, there were a couple different versions. And the market wasn't ready for it. You know, today we say, of course, there is the market for a tablet. Of course, there is a market for a smartphone. Of course, there is a market for a personal electronic device that does your calendaring and keeps track of your telephone numbers and all of that. And somehow when that was introduced at this point, 22 years ago, it, it didn't take off. Can you explain what happened in the interim between the Newton and later the BlackBerry and then our modern day smartphones. What changed and, and would you have seen that at the time that the market wasn't ripe and, and now it is? Yeah, it's a real great case study. And there's a few things that went on around that time. And my connection to it was I, I led the services industry in terms of growing the market for software development and industry applications of those handheld devices beginning in 1989 and continuing that all the way through to today. And the economics of, of that technology were really, really challenging back in the early days, including with the new data storage was very, very expensive. These little devices that have, they hold one, you know, like one megabyte, like one megabyte back then would cost $500 to store. If you think about that today, that your phone would be worth probably a billion dollars um, <laughs> if you if you applied that cost to how much storage we carry around with us today. The battery power for these devices was uh, very uh, constraining, so they didn't run very long without 
needing to be charged. And then also the ability to move the data, whether it was wirelessly or through some other means, was also complex and expensive. Wireless communications was just beginning to really emerge with pagers, but then building off the pager technology to actually allow for more data to be passed around to these devices. And so developing and designing applications was was really tough. And the, the applications that succeeded tended to be very, very specialized vertical applications like law enforcement, for example. And, and in fact, my largest client base during that whole entire period of time was the law enforcement community. Hence, my connection to government emerged at that time. Something else happened, though, and just think about the time frame. We're talking about the 1990s in Silicon Valley and the investment in um, in technology and the technology industry was all focused on mobile in the 90s. I mean, if you go back and look at the the logos of the buildings in Silicon Valley at the time, they would have been all companies focused on the mobile computing market. And with the emergence and invention of the browser, uh, the internet browser and the internet itself, the internet really commanded the attention of that capital investment and it shifted very quickly. And I think that that event and the industry that was built on the internet and think about it, you're going into the late 90s, you go past Y2K and that market boom, and then you are into the dot-com phenomena, ultimately the bubble burst, and nonetheless the, the die had been cast and the mobile market took a back seat for quite a long period of time. And so when then you get the recovery from Y2K and the emergence of the smartphone, you can see the how there was probably a pause in the mobile market of maybe five to 10 years because of the attention that the internet itself got during that time frame. And it's, so it's interesting because then fast forward, storage is more affordable, batteries last longer, form factors are now smaller and, and easier to uh, perhaps develop applications for that people can carry around. And that's how, that's kind of all the things that happened and the Newton got caught in the time, it's just, you know, timing, of, uh, frankly, probably ahead of its time. And there's some great books and even uh, Netflix television, I mean, Netflix production about what was happening in the industry, you know, in that time frame. And some of the best entrepreneurs that later became known for breakthrough companies were more closely associated with the mobile market and it's a lot, you know, kind of seemingly collapse and resurgence, even though we know them for other, you know, for other companies after the fact. There's a great book, Billion Dollar Coach. It's one of my favorite books uh, this past year. And you know, it tells the story about what was happening in Silicon Valley around that time and all these iconic executives that worked together to build the industry itself and their connection to, to mobile first. So really it wasn't, the market may have been ready for a smartphone once it had been integrated and everything else that the market had caught up to. So a smartphone, like you're saying, with more storage, with a longer battery life, with more interoperability with things like a browser. And so it really wasn't that the market wasn't there, it was that the, the product wasn't really sufficiently 
mature to capture the need or to fill the need. Yeah, I think what my my version of this series of events is that the invention of the browser and the scaling of the access to the internet created a, a way of thinking about applications and a way to develop them more, to be more efficient and therefore putting them on a mobile device wasn't as demanding on the storage needs, battery life, and the other limitations but during that time frame. I mean, so today, now we talk about 5G and we talk about the advantages of zero latency, high bandwidth ability to communicate. We're having to then now reimagine what we think about what an application is. And that's going to open up the use of augmented reality, uh, virtual reality, data analytics to create applications that nobody had ever conceived of. And that's, and that, you know, again, it gets back to some of the things we were talking about on entrepreneurship, being able to imagine the use of, say, augmented reality to a trade that today has, you know, perhaps been unchanged for, you know, many years. Perhaps the auto repair business is, is an example. You know, if I have augmented reality and I can look at a part and I can see what's wrong with it, with wrong, what's wrong with it, and I can have some instructions on how to repair it right there with me. Right? It's a, it's the applications are endless, and I think that's the opportunity for tomorrow's creative entrepreneurs to be thinking about what we can do with high bandwidth, low cost communications combined with smart devices that can be, you know, kept in our pockets and then, you know, figure out ways to change an industry. And and that's, that's what we're going to see. I even still find myself, you know, sitting back and thinking about, you know, what are those applications? You know, how is this going to play itself out? And I think it's, you know, I I think of the, the digital native millennials and younger people that have grown up with the internet and have the ability to, you know, either think about maybe it's a online game that they like to play on their device and then how that could be applied to complex business problem, a complex industrial process, and again, just transform a sector. Those are the things we're going to see how it plays out. It's just going to be really uh, exciting and really interesting. It'll be just like the late 80s and 90s in terms of the emergence of mobile and the internet. And, and, you know, Donna, I think that the one thing that I reflect on is, you know, there's a lot of people in our profession who have worked their entire career and haven't seen a transformation uh, like this. They haven't seen a transformational technology in the last 10 or 20 years, um, like, like we're about to see with 5G and these 5G enabled devices. So the idea of transformative technologies you know, like the PC, like the local area network, like mobile data, like the smartphone, I haven't come around very, very much lately. And, and now we're going to see one play itself out and getting people to break loose of, you know, of incremental thinking that everything's a, like right now, everybody thinks, oh, 5G, I can download a, a Netflix faster. Well, that's not, that, yeah, that's, that's cool, but that's not really how this is going to going to change the way business is done and open up new opportunities. 
I want to touch on something because I, a lot of people do have some great ideas for internet-based businesses. And I mean, you yourself mentioned this concept of maybe like an Airbnb or an Uber for farm equipment, right? And, and a lot of these internet-based ideas in order to get traction require not only potentially capital, which we talked about, but also they require gaining traction between two different audiences, you know, or, or an audience that interacts with each other, buyers and sellers, for example, or if you think about the example of, you know, MySpace, it just didn't get enough traction of enough people interacting in a space. And, and that's where a lot of business ideas, I think, don't succeed. I'm thinking in particular, and, and again, like you, people will come to me with, with some business plans and say, I have this great idea and here's what I want to do. And, and sometimes they really are fantastic ideas. Oftentimes they are about creating markets where markets are, are not. What advice do you give someone who wants to do that? Right now, being a voice on the internet, you're a voice in the wilderness, right? <clears throat> How do you either gather people together, gather your business constituencies together, out on the internet? Another great question. The overarching principle is meter, in other words, diligently allocate investment to the right moments in time, over time, in order to match investment with return. This is where a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors, frankly, collapse under their own weight because they often take on a lot of costs early on and never recover that cost and turn a profit. And so they're unsustainable. So the idea of being sustainable and matching investment to return over time is really important because now then that lets us look at your question in terms of being able to connect to an audience and how today, you, you know, any anybody, any one of us can reach millions of people through the internet and through, you know, social media. And so then the question is, you know, again, target market, you know, what's the value that's being being provided? I have a, a very, another close colleague who's doing a startup and it's an online uh, startup, a very specific niche and highly personal. And I think, you know, watching them, they started with what might be like a year long social media type of a campaign where all they're doing is just kind of building the brand, right? And getting followership. They're not selling anything yet, but their investment also is, isn't, you know, that significant. You're just kind of continuing to stick with the focus of, you know, building, building an audience. I would say minimal to modest cost allocation, while in the meantime, building some capacity to then flip the switch on that audience and be ready to go, you know, to go and open the doors, if you will. These are virtual, you know, doors, right? This, these businesses won't have office buildings, for example, and, you know, tap into a worldwide supply chain, right? That's built over, say, that first year. Um, and then, again, once the doors are open, then surge even further in terms of the investment now having to take on inventory but having sales to support that you know and doing that all in a sequence that that is effective from the standpoint of you know really kind of that launch if you will <laughs> think of an airplane and i think that's where people get the timing often wrong you know they take on they take on an office you know they spend a lot of money on things that don't really drive 
the audience growth and the sales traction, if you will. And, you know, those businesses often, you know, close very quickly because of the ineffective allocation of capital. Oftentimes, if you could have the greatest idea, but if your posture is, you know, if I build it, they will come, that's not going to work. It's not just about having the great idea. It's also about finding the market to recognize that you have a great idea and and overcoming their barrier to entry and participating in whatever you set up. And I think that's a piece sometimes that, that sort of would be entrepreneurs are not thinking through very carefully. Yeah, I think that you, know, you really have to be self-aware to be successful as an entrepreneur in terms of knowing the difference between what what's satisfying to your ego versus what really is going to contribute to the success of your of your endeavor. So, I want to ask you a completely different question, especially now as as a lot of us have been somewhat homebound during COVID. I think a lot of us, including entrepreneurs, are reassessing what is it that matters to me? What do I want my life to look like? And I think not having to show up physically in an office every day really opens up a great number of possibilities. And, and like we talked about, remote work opens up a great number of possibilities of how you can design your life to work for you as an executive. What kind of advice do you have for entrepreneurs about the rest of their lives. I mean, I, I, most of us, I think, are a bit... My husband yesterday told me I'm obsessive. We work long hours, we're, and we're constantly thinking about our business. Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs about what they need to pay attention to in their personal and family lives? Well, anything's possible in this environment. I start with that. We have a... This Friday, we have a program every Friday where we, we take... Um, about 20 service members are veterans through a, a virtual event where we focus on a resume building and interview skills and we talk about questions like this and I and I think about them because you know coming out of the service they have many unique skills great leadership experiences to share but I hear them often asking the question of you know what's what's my value right what's like what do i bring up uh, you know they think of themselves as having been limited by the experience of serving in the military where those of us who haven't had that privilege in our in in our in business think wow what an incredible opportunity right to bring those experiences to business and so making the connect you know kind of bridging the gap and and sharing those insights with one another is a is a really rewarding activity. but but in this environment you know, you think about what the job opportunities are. It used to be constrained by geography, you know, for centuries, right? Living near a harbor, you know, living near a source of water to, you know, cool down the plant or ship heavy products. Those were all things that then dictated that if you were, you know, if you wanted to be in the auto industry, you probably were you know, near Detroit back in the day. Nowadays, that's changed quite a bit in those industries. But, but with virtual, the idea of applying for a job that's halfway across the country or being in rural America and being able to get a job with, you know, a metropolitan headquartered employer, whether they're in Seattle or New York City. Those are those opportunities are really all opened up now in a really unique way. And my advice is really basic is invest a little bit in your in your virtual work environment. It's funny, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. And I get on 
yeah, let's 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 say that in the last six months, I've been with, I'm going to say, two thousand people virtually, and see their, I can see their lighting, I can see the way that they show up, I can see how they dress, I can see whether or not their technology really works, and you know, and I would say that for you know for that startup for that entrepreneur for that transitioning service member you know spend a few bucks on some lighting you know make sure the technology test out the technology make sure it's working well because if this is the way that many of us will continue to work you really do have to you know raise your virtual conference uh, skills and i actually heard that there's an upsurge in people seeking lower facelifts because as they're engaging in these zoom conferences down on their laptops people are seeing that you know underneath their chin it's just amazing what the unforeseen consequences of these different events are yeah well i you know i i haven't heard that but i can relate to that because depending again on where the camera is positioned depending on your lighting you know, your appearance can be affected and, yeah. and confidence. And that's part of your branding. It is. It, you know, it's it's just, it, you know, people talk about, you know, dressing, well, that phrase, dress for success, right? I mean, that's been around for ages. The idea today is just a little bit different and, you know, perhaps suit and tie, you know, is not necessarily going to be the, the dress code of the day going forward. But investing the same way you would think about how you might show up in person, but how you do it online is it? I think it's a topic. I I, I think that there have been, you know, people whose whose setup has let them down, you know, and they're dark and you can't see them and it's kind of you know spooky. I think that listen, working with some of the CEOs that I work with and seeing their setups, I I definitely know. They've got a great team helping them make sure that that they're coming across very confidently. And a part of that is are things that we haven't had to work with before. You know, 99% of us don't have experience with lighting. 99% of us don't have experience with how to position the camera. But we have to think about that in this environment. And it, I know it sounds kind of very basic, but I believe I believe it's more important than a lot of other factors showing up for a job interview and, you know, again, having having the right, you know, setup and communications to me is is going to be a factor in how well that interview goes. And this reminds me of, of the lesson I was taught by one of the first uh, law partners that I worked with who told me, you know, he, he, he said, this is unacceptable. You, know, you have a bolded phrase here, but the period at the end of it isn't bolded. He said, you know, our customers don't know how well you practice law because they're not experts in that. But they know how to format a document. And if they see a dropped ball in the formatting of the document, that's going to cast doubt on our abilities as attorneys. And, and that was a really good lesson. And I think that goes very much to your interest in branding is inspiring confidence in your in your audience that they're dealing with someone who is a professional, that is detail-oriented, that does have things, you know, under control, so to speak. What kind of, of presentation do you think is particularly appreciated in the federal services and federal products market? What, what are some guidelines that we should think about how we want to present ourselves to those particular buyers? Yeah, listen, uh, interesting because some of what I said, I might still harken back to replicating that in-person experience online with that market. You know, that government market, it prides itself in discipline and 
tradition of some some amount of formality. I remember after 9-11, there was a debate about, you know, whether the new agencies that were being created to reorganize and focus on the threat of terrorism and restoring the economy, you know, they had the conversation about dress code. I was in the room, you know, with with the 10 of the leaders that I supported at the time. And I'll never forget the phrase. It, they said that, you know, business attire, suit and tie every day, 24-7. And then they finished it with, this is a serious business. We want people to show we're serious about this, that, you know, about this challenge. And that, la- that, you know, lasted all the way to this day in terms of the impression about how our government officials and executives and the younger professionals coming up through government take their responsibility very seriously. And so, you know, I had a, a, an important meeting recently and I was suit and tie, you know, on, online. I was the executive for that conversation and the team of the developers, they could perhaps dress a little bit more to fit their, um, their persona. And maybe also the way clients want to see the digital community show up. You know, it's a little different. You know, you see the, all this black and different type of color scheme and clothing in this digital world. But the, the executives and the leaders, both within the government and in business, still are looking at this as a serious business and that we ought to take that responsibility to reflect way that they feel and show respect for that because it's still really important. So it's a very nuanced answer. It's a nuanced answer to your question, Don, I have to admit. So so this issue particularly interests me as, as a woman, right? Because our options for dressing are much broader than for men, right? The men, you have t-shirt, collared golf shirt, or, or you know, suit and tie. Women have a, a much broader range of options before them, and 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 it's interesting because, like with many things, women are interpreted by everyone they interact with through a different lens. They don't know which lens they're dealing with, and so this raises kind of an interesting question about dressing for success within the government space. I remember when Michelle Obama became first lady, there was just this tremendous delight in the fact that she would wear sleeveless clothing. And then the Trump White House made it very clear that that was not acceptable. And all of a sudden you saw pantyhose come back to Washington, D.C. And then, you know, there's also, I think for women, it's, it's, it's even more fraught within the federal space, particularly with the military, because I think although most of our modern leaders have uh, wives that may not necessarily have been homemakers, traditionally, that was what was expected in a successful officer, right? Is you had your your wife was a homemaker. And so again, you you know, you meet someone in uniform or, or you meet someone at OSD and you just quite don't know which filter you're about to be evaluated through. So so what advice would you give women in this space in terms of presenting themselves? And please don't even, you know, limit it to clothing. I mean, I would please go further about individual expression, tattoos, any of that. Well, there's certainly a lot more latitude uh, given for what I think are really unique personal choices. You mentioned tattoos, for example, or perhaps piercings or even the clothing itself. And I would just say this is this, this broadly for men and women. And that, you know, and that is that while there is a 
real shift in terms of expectations relative to what I would call digital culture. We saw something very similar in the dot-com boom time, the move to what we call business casual at the time. Well, you know, now we're on some other version of the same phenomena, kind of a loosening up of expectations and encouragement for people to show up who they are and to be their authentic selves and to be aware of the issue of masking where you know people are are really you know hiding their true self and given all of that messaging and all of that encouragement to be more I would say liberal in terms of expectations and and ultimately more casual we have to still recognize that in the business and in the government world those you know the, those two things can conflict with with one another and and we see it in terms of for example we see conservative leaders who want digital look for that digital persona to show up you know and th- then they think that they're getting digital right <laughs> i mean you know on the other hand you know you, you could have a situation where that that digital persona showing up doesn't you know isn't meeting a different type of leader's expectation for what they what they want to see in their environment so it's it's complicated and i really do think that there's a balancing act to recognize how both both worlds kind of fit in together and to and to pay attention to the signals you know i think that uh you know showing up you know for an interview for you know a role that requires a bit more conservatism in terms of dress style again whether it's a man or a woman or you know showing up for a you know a software developer type of job opportunity you know in a black t-shirt you know just being again being self-aware and recognizing that the, the environment that you're in and for everything that we think about encouraging people to be their authentic self is to recognize that the that the other dimension of that is true when thinking about someone else who feels like they're, you know, they're showing up as their authentic self in a different way than than you are. In other words, it goes both ways. And, and again, having that self-awareness to me is the most important thing to think through and respect that, you know, that there will be times where you have to adapt to the environment that you're going to be in. And I don't think that's ever going to change. So this raises some interesting questions when we are talking about your authentic self in terms of your ethnicity, right? We have workplaces, for example, that have deemed dreadlocks inappropriate for a professional environment. Those are an ethnic, traditional hairstyle that is one-for-one responsive to particular ethnic hair. How do you think, uh, or or if you think of the example of, of a Hindu who normally wears a dot, in the middle of her forehead. Um, I have a friend who agonized over whether to wear a kippah, a, a Jewish head covering, in the federal workspace. How would you advise those people? There's something exceedingly unfair about telling them, you know, show up as who somebody else expects from central casting, you know, and you got to be blonde and, and, and all that. I mean, how do we interact with that as potential salespeople and potential professionals in a particular workplace that that maybe hasn't caught up? We're all on a learning journey when it comes to that question and that topic and other things that are related to that and understanding 
what is driven by ethnic differences with cultural differences uh, that are born from, you know, our backgrounds. And, you know, I think of the Maya Angela quote, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. I mean, this to me is our opportunity in terms of our careers to really learn the things we don't know and challenge those decisions, those patterns, again, the orthodoxies, by changing you know, our behavior and doing something differently. I do think that this, you know, this environment that we're in and topics like that question demand that we take deliberate action. And I really encourage action as the measure of our response you know, to this time period. Not what do we think about when we wake up in the morning, but what do we actually go do? And what do we encourage others to do? And so I think there's a whole bunch of those norms that need to be, you know, need to be relooked at. And we ought to be really well-rounded in respecting the, you know, kind of like the artifacts, the cultural representations of people's backgrounds. But we also have to recognize, again, it goes, you know, both directions. You know, as an Italian-American, the experiences of my family are represented in, you know, in unionized labor, hard work in the steel industry, very scrappy, you know, culture and connection to certain types of communities. And that's those experiences of generations are different than than any other. And respecting those individual differences and celebrating them, frankly, I, I think is just an amazing opportunity for us. And you know, I'm really pleased and humbled, if you will, by watching, you know, the challenges that we're stepping up to in this environment. And I, I'm encouraged, even though, you know, it's very bumpy, you know, at times for society to make the changes that, that we need to make. Wonderful. Well, Greg, thanks again for spending all this great quality time with us. And I think your thoughts are fascinating. Any last thoughts to share with us? No, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. Um, you, you bring a tremendous vision and expertise to our community, our community of serving our government clients making the country run better. And it's a pleasure to be able to join you and continue to work with you and see your success. So I'm really proud uh, that we're connected together and I love spending this time with you. And likewise, it's never a boring conversation with you, Greg. Thanks again. Thank you.